This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, and welcome to my Monday Twilight Show. I'm Hannah Wilson, and tonight, finally, in this summer, a bit of sunshine, uh, we'll be joined by Carl Williams, who is a life coach, and we're going to be chatting about how to build healthy habits. So, do join in, feel free to comment or call in and join us on the chat. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, can you hear me okay? I can. Fabulous. Thank you for joining me tonight. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, why not? Um, so my name is Carl Williams and um, I am sort of a health and wellness life coach, lifestyle coach, basically sort of a habit, mindset and lifestyle approach to being the healthiest, happiest version of yourself. Fabulous. So uh, I kind of, I've kind of asked you to come on because I feel like this is a really interesting one uh, from both aspects of the fact that teachers and teacher burnout is a massive thing and teachers leaving the profession because I don't think they manage their well-being overly well. I think they massively throw everything into the students and the learning and forget to look after themselves and think about themselves and the habits that they need to be able to perform the best that they can but also kind of our responsibility to give students almost those skills on how to build skills for life and how to have those healthy habits and how to create um good things in their life and build upon them um so for anybody that's listening that hasn't listened to my spring into well-being that was a good show uh, back in april so do go back and have a listen to that and i think this is a perfect kind of follow-on for summer um with that so I, I kind of got into habits because I read Atomic Habits um, and like uh, that for me was like, oh my gosh, this is so simple. Like actually, if you break it down into little things, it's not this big thing that you've got to achieve. It's just little bits and little things that you can do to kind of improve your life and, and make you more likely to succeed. And I think that's that's the bit that we kind of, as teachers, we kind of forget about we forget about we skip steps because we want to fill everything in and get everything done and and actually kind of the little things if we change the little things we can make our lives a lot easier and a lot better if that makes sense yeah um i think atomic habits is a fantastic book i think it's um introduced a lot of people into the world of behavior change and i think james writes in a really simple to understand um way um, I think that the, the sticking point, like you say, for a lot of people is taking the information from the book as we do. And this isn't just behavior change. I think this is with, with any knowledge that we acquire is taking the information, um, and applying it. Um, it's one thing to know, and it's another thing to do. Um, and I think for a lot of people, well, like, this is what sort of fascinated me about it and got me into this was when I was a personal trainer, for example, you know, people, um, know that broccoli is better for you than chocolate, but people will still prefer to eat chocolate than broccoli. And it's like, okay, well, people know, essentially people know what to do. So it's how do you then 
make it easier or more sustainable to do what you know what you need to do. Um, and I think obviously there's so many things in, in the world of teaching that it's almost like it's, it's a very unique environment. And, and that's the thing with not only as individuals within the world, we all face our unique challenges, but also teachers obviously within their profession do so as well. Um, and I think that is unfortunately, um, as you know, I'm not myself in the profession, but sort of from what I read and stuff isn't getting any easier. No, and I think I think that's the thing is that it, the teaching has definitely changed since COVID, and I think that's the perception that is perhaps like not noticed is that it's it's almost becoming harder to teach because there's there's all the extra bits that we have to do in terms of students' well being that's changed, um, but I think also that kind of the resilience in students that changed the habits of students that have changed that kind of students at home during covid were very much like it depended on their household as to whether they had the good habits to get up to go online to work out what their study was and to do the work or whether they were just allowed to kind of game and didn't really do anything and kind of came back after months having not done anything and there's very much a bit of a mindset with students now that kind of well it'll all get done eventually it's not really going to affect my outcome if i don't bother and and i think that that's kind of quite made it quite tough to teach that you've got these kind of students that like kind of if things don't work they kind of shut down and I think that's the thing we as teachers need to teach the students um to create better habits for themselves in terms of kind of especially like in terms of non-attenders like we have massive uh, issues with students having anxiety and not being able to come into school and and actually like do we need to build better habits with them and, and things like just laying the school uniform out in the in the evening before so when they get up they can put it in or or reduce the barriers for them to be able to get in there's lots of different things in terms of habits that we can build in for for them as well and I think that's it's, it's kind of that thing that we as teachers are filling those gaps and trying to do the work for the students in terms but then the students actually need to rebuild these habits themselves in terms of what they need to do in terms of how to study it like not leaving it to the last minute and then having to suddenly cram and really really struggle and they're, they're struggling with that exam process over the last couple of years because they haven't built up that resilience to it so it's it's kind of an interesting one from the student point of view as well in terms of um kind of building habits like if you were to kind of start afresh what would what would you say is the most important kind of areas to focus on for students yeah if you were like a teenage you <laughs> what would get you out oh, of it God. what would make you kind of <laughs> get going uh, so i think it's it's quite complex isn't it because there are so many things going on i think what one of the biggest and this is not just students but for everybody but just sort of resonates with what you just said which is our environment plays a huge part in um our habits um so there's actually a whole branch of this now um, on sort of environment design. So it's, it's you know, a, a more universally accepted example might be, for example, if you have a bowl of fruit out on the table, um, you know, that you have to walk past every time you go to the kitchen, you're going to be more, you're more likely to, um, you know, snack on fruit than rather than chocolate, let's say, for example. And you'll notice this in supermarkets that they're designed to essentially force you to make decisions. So while you as teachers can help um, the students, you know, make suggestions and everything, their environment at home is going to have such a large influence on 
what they ultimately decide to do, whether, you know, whether there is more obstacles or whether it's easy to do. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's kind of in a way, and I don't know how uh, uh, sort of applicable this is or how easy to do it is, but, you know, in a way really for, for students, it's almost having a word with the parents as well, because the support is huge. Um, we are hugely influenced by what people around us do. Um, I think the really tricky thing, again, not just students, but I guess it does affect the younger more, with a lot of the decisions that we make in life, the important decisions at least, the costs of that decision are way into the future. You know, so you're not you're not thinking about how, at the beginning of school holidays, let's say, you're not thinking about how the decision not to study that day is going to affect you in six weeks' time because it seems so far from the future that it doesn't quite feel real or tangible. And in, in a sense, it's not. Um, I think working on that mindset of somehow bringing the costs of not doing the right thing now into the future. I guess that again can come from peers and everything. Um, but in terms of in terms of study, I think routine is really important. I think some people fare better with routines more so than others. Um, but for the sake of this, we'll just assume that the app, most people do have a routine. Um, which is, you know, kind of getting into this idea of consistent daily action over falling into the cramming method. And what you've got to do is you've got to relate it to the costs and benefits to whatever the student values. You know, we, we, we do chase values. So it's, I don't know, you know, they've just been at school all, all term and they're going to want to see their friends and everything like that. So it's sort of how can you integrate it and, and shrinking the change? So, you know, are you better off just doing half an hour every day um, rather than, you know, having to spend five hours every day for a week at the end of the holidays. I think with one thing in particular, if, if, and this is probably, you know, my age coming through with kids and teenagers and everything is, is, uh, the one thing that's really missing, and this is adults as well, but it's really bad with teenagers is, is sleep. Um, I just think that, you know, I think if, if I had children or anything, the one thing that I would encourage is a regular sleep routine just because it helps with memory consolidation, it helps with mood. Um, you know, one poor night's sleep can increase anxiety by anything north of 33% the next day. Um, and I think it just does build the foundation of all other habits. Obviously, um, we're, we're noticing more and more now on um, the impact on diet that it has on attention and mood and everything. And that's obviously hugely impacted by sleep. Um, and I think the other thing is, is I, don't know, I guess this is a bit more complex again, but is, is something I noticed with school kids around where I live is the consumption of caffeine. So I guess it's kind of more breaking a bad habit, but it is, it's this lack of sleep and now the access they have to, um, I didn't realize that like these prime drinks have caffeine in and obviously I see people having like monsters at eight o'clock and you're just, it's a really early age and it's adults we're, we're particularly guilty of this, but I think it's just happening earlier now where you're in this poor sleep caffeine cycle, these huge energy highs and lows, concentration is going to be affected. So it's going to take longer to do the tasks. Um, I, I just think really it comes down to, I, what I would call basic health hygiene, plenty of sleep, eating a decent amount, a, a decent um, nutritional plan. And that doesn't mean avoiding all the foods that everyone enjoys. You can do that, but it's also just making sure you take the big boxes. 
some form of routine. Um, but also, I guess, positioning it in a way, we, we, we are, habits work, obviously, if you've read it, the habit loop, Charles Duhigg, who, who discovered this, is cue, activity, reward. We do like to be rewarded. So it's almost whatever it is that the habit that the um, student is trying to work on, it, it has to be something rewarding at the end. Um, you know, so it could be half an hour of studying means half an hour on your phone or something like that. And that's a very simplistic way of thinking about it. But when it feels like a punishment, you know, we, we very rarely move towards pain. So yeah, it, and it, it, I, 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 I was just reading the, um, the, what was it? The wanting to be, oh gosh. Oh my gosh, I forgot, I've forgotten the book. I told you the other day. Um, the what the courage to be disliked, and that's all about how like if you pressurize actually a child into studying, they'll they won't enjoy studying. You want it to be an enjoyable thing that they get into the habit, and actually they kind of like that habit, and they can see the reward for it. You don't want to force them into it, it becomes a negative thing, and then it becomes harder to get them to do it, and it becomes like this negative cycle. It needs to be a positive cycle, I guess. A hundred percent. The one thing that, that, that a lot of people don't take into to account is one of the things that we really need that makes us happy in life, all, all throughout life, is autonomy. And I know that in particular for my school days, if someone told me to do something, I was less likely to do it. Whereas <laughs> if they were like, you can do it or you don't have to do it, I'd be like, no, I want to do it. And because that autonomy, that freedom of choice to do it, and it, it, when it, was, it, it was exactly the same thing. It was just framed in a way where it was something that I was seeing as I wanted to do because it was for my benefit or gain or something, you know, then, then that was the way to get me to. And I think now with, um, you know, I think that the, the big thing, going back to what you said about COVID, is one of the best things in life, the best teachers in life is experience, which is why I always encourage people. I'm like, I very much have a try and see how you get on mentality because it, it, you're going to learn more by doing something and failing or succeeding than you will ever, will ever do by reading any books. Um, it's, you know, again, it's kind of that action will always trump knowledge or unapplied knowledge anyway. And I think what happened in lockdown, which was for a lot of people was the thing is with students is they had a taste of the other side. They almost had this too much freedom um, yeah. and no routine and complete autonomy. And, you know, because parents were trying to, to be honest, no one, let's, let's, let's say it really is, no one really knew what the hell was going on, right? So everyone was kind of making up as they went along. So there's no routine, there's all this autonomy, like you can't really recreate a whole school day when they're at home. And the problem now you've got is, is they've had a taste of that and we don't like stuff being taken away from us, even if what's being taken away is a good thing. Um I, I think, I think that goes in with the sleep as well. I think a lot of them saw the other side of, of gaming all night with their friends and staying up and being really fun and, mm. and having not realising the consequence of having that kind of repeated lack of sleep. And Whereas if they try and do that now on a weekday and then try and come into what school and and function, it, it they're really, really struggling. Like, the, But they're still wanting to keep those habits of kind of staying like and gaming. But there's like that massive kind of impact on them in terms of like how their mood is for them the rest of the week, but they just don't quite understand their bodies enough. And I think that's what, what you've just said is, is absolutely spot on. It's, it's almost a lack of awareness. And, you know, it is it's the great thing with the human body and the human mind is, is we're a lot more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. Um, but we also, we adapt very, very well. And that's not always a good thing. So, you know, I can, I sometimes work with people, you know, like I only need five hours sleep and, unless they're a scientific sort of miracle um, 
they're going to need more. But what they're really saying is they've got used to surviving on five hours of sleep. So what feels normal to them now is, um, you know, what is not actually normal feels normal to them now. So they're really, they're just running on constant stress and they've just become so accustomed to that feeling that they think that that's how everybody else feels. And so, you know, and that's that, then that goes back into the loop, like I was saying. So these, you know, these, these students are staying up late. They've had, you know, we, we, we move towards pleasure. They've experienced that. And then they know that they, in the morning, they can walk into Tesco and buy a monster, monster which has, a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which has the equivalent of a triple espresso in it, which doesn't taste like a coffee. So they, people don't compute the caffeine consumption within that. They know it's got caffeine in it, but I don't think people truly realize how much caffeine is in those things. Obviously, yeah, then and I've had it great. That, I've had it that students have brought one in and, and, and I've taken it off them period one. So they've, they've, 8.30 in the morning, those they're drinking those. And I've actually Googled it. And then I was like, right, that's the equivalent of 21. I think it was this big bottle. And he was the, the kid was like, I'll, I'll drink that before break, miss. I'll have that, but I'll, I've drunk that before 10.30. I was like, no, you're not meant to have it in school. Like, that's coming with me. You can take it back at the end of the day. But, like, it was the equivalent of 21 cubes of sugar. And I was like, it, the, the effect that that's going to be having on their body, having 21 cubes of sugar, like first thing in the morning and then having to cope with the rest of the day yeah so they're going to crash mid-morning right they're going to they're going to be absolutely buzzing for about an hour and a half um <laughs> you know so maybe for the first few lessons they'll be taking everything in and they're just going to get this. and then of course you, you you get into what i call you know you ride the caffeine surge. so then you need to prop yourself up again so maybe they go out on a lunch break but this again comes down to that environment where um you know how, how do you control that um you know, the other thing is, I think, you know, so a lot of people, what a lot of people misunderstand, oh, we kind of view things differently, but obviously, you know, we talk about coffee and caffeine, we talk about sort of vaping and nicotine, but these are drugs and they still work in on the brain by very similar mechanisms to all the other drugs that are kind of categorized into the, you know, more frowned upon um, stuff. So, you know, you're starting to build up a tolerance, um, but they obviously do work um on the brain, they, they neurologically impact us. So, for example, there are there are obviously there are benefits to caffeine. Probably not at that age and not in those quantities. But you know there is that alertness and stuff. But what's going to happen with these people is they you know they consume a monster. Then a monster is not enough to um, get them going because their tolerance is built up. And then they're on two monsters. Now they're pushing the upper limit of caffeine intake. And along with once you cross that threshold, which is about four hundred milligrams a day, which is really just a couple of cans of monster. Um, then you start getting increased depression, increased anxiety. But like you said, with that lack of awareness around that, they're not going to put their mood down to the fact that they're consuming copious amounts of caffeine or not sleeping. And so somehow there's got to be this educational um, involvement of, like you say, of, of this is how it, because everything's linked. And this is why I take very much, I'm not a huge fan of the word, but a holistic approach that, you know, people say it's training and diet, but, you know, obviously if you sleep well, your daily movement and exercise is going to be greater. And if you train and move more, you feel better. So you tend to eat better. And if you eat better, you tend to sleep better. So it's very hard to pick something and isolate it. But it's not until you've experienced it all working together that you're tr it truly clicks, I think, that you're like, oh, yeah, do you know what I thought was um, a good day actually turned out now to be just a normal day. And now that I'm paying attention to these things. So until you connect those dots to this is how caffeine is affecting you. And the other one, obviously, nowadays is becoming really more dominant is, is the use of nicotine. Um, and, and you're doing quite an interesting one. You're doing caffeine free for the month. Yes. 
I well, I'm in two minds at the moment, but essentially, yeah. <laughs> um, I so if anyone and and this is the thing, and I think is you know with with caffeine, like I say, with any drug, we build up a tolerance. People have this idea of what is a lot of caffeine and what's not a lot. Obviously. It doesn't have to be a lot, but if you've been doing it basically forever, um, at some point your brain is, is just going to get used to it and the effects are going to be less and less. And so I, I, for myself, with my habits, I have a line um, with what might be regarded as, let's not say bad habits, but sort of borderline habits where, like I said, where there is a potential for a habit to become bad, there's that line of want and need. And when I get too close to that line, when I feel like, I felt like I was needing caffeine just to get going in the morning. And then I'm thinking, okay, am I... Is, is my need because my sleep quality or my sleep hygiene is so bad that, you know, I don't want to depend on, we shouldn't have to depend on caffeine to get going in the morning. That's the need side of things. I absolutely love coffee. Um, I quit drinking five years ago and kind of filtered all my energy into coffee and getting to know all the different things. And it's, so I, I don't ever intend to quit coffee, but I always want it to be something that I want, not something that I need. So, we can, you can do, everyone can do, if you've been consuming a regular caffeine reset, which is essentially where you just stop taking caffeine, the receptors in the brain um, that respond to caffeine that basically block a, a neurotransmitter called adenosine, which is what makes us sleepy, that's how caffeine works. They become resensitized so that when you go back to having caffeine, what maybe took you three cups of coffee to feel, you have that one cup of coffee, and I don't know, probably a lot of people listening won't remember their very first coffee I certainly don't but you go back to that feeling of you know one cup of coffee and you're on top of the world and firing on all cylinders so that's the reset I don't know why I said 28 days I think I got a bit carried away but um essentially <laughs> a reset every so often if you are a regular and I'm going to say caffeine here because obviously it's important to separate coffee from caffeine even though caffeine is part of coffee because you can obviously get um if you get a true decaf coffee you can still enjoy coffee without the caffeine but if you are a habitual user of caffeine, taking a break every so often is a really, really good thing to do um, just to make sure that you are getting the benefits and, and, and sort of ridding yourself of the negatives that come with chronic caffeine consumption. But it's not much fun. Um, <laughs> I'm so I'm, I've, I've never got into caffeine. I, I'm, I'm like, if I have a Red Bull, then that's it. I'm never going to sleep again. Like, uh, that's, that's that. I am that person yeah. that has that initial effect when I do have it. Um, but I know, yeah, I, know we, I see all the teachers living on it. So. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the thing is as well, um, caffeine works on dopamine, right? Which is, um, you know, is, is one of the, the feel good hormones. So stress lack of energy i mean it's caffeine is a fantastic drug i mean it does what it's meant to do really really well it's just we can become too dependent on it and i think when we become dependent on anything it can become problematic and everyone has a different threshold so like i say i quit drinking um really for reasons where i, I just got to the point where i couldn't see the upside um you know and i they're really aware of the downsides and but that point for everybody is going to be unique so you know i know people that like like, oh, I might do a caffeine reset, but I have one cup a week. It's like, you're probably not going to be in a danger zone yeah. there. Whereas I know some people who are on six cups a day and it's just like, okay, well, you know, but unfortunately they're the people that are really going to feel it. So really what you've got to look at is, like you say, is, is there's nothing wrong with drinking coffee and there's nothing wrong with consuming caffeine, but is it causing you more problems than it's helping with? And are you dependent on it? And if that's something where you're not sure, I think it's always worth exploring, like what would happen, like, 
if it would be negative if you didn't have it, that's sort of a very, I guess, like a proceed with caution area for me. Um, and I think it's a, it's a similar thing with chocolate, isn't it? That has the dopamine if you have that. And that's where people could quite often will snack when they're tired because they're looking for that kind of happy hit, I guess. Yeah, and um, dark chocolate, maybe it's all chocolate, is, um, I was going to say Oxycontin then, but that's the um, painkiller drug, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's because I was just thinking about that dope sick documentary on, a uh, fascinating documentary on Disney Plus, I know I've never, never seen it, but um, it is, um, the, it's the other feel-good hormone, it's, it's going to come back to me, if I stop thinking about it, it will come back to me. It's the same hormone that's released, Oxy... Oh, Oxytocin. Oxytocin, not oxycontin. Oxytocin. So when you <laughs> hug someone or you have physical contact, but, um, chocolate also so releases that. Um, but obviously, when when you're, you know, let's say towards the end of term, you're tired, stressed, yeah. burnt out, you're going to be craving these things. You know, these these feel good hormones, and so you're going to naturally lean towards activities. And I think the 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 really important distinction is chasing dopamine not so much of a problem um but the problem is now dopamine comes really cheaply you know yeah. um the binge watching netflix the again and, and this is when i say all these things this, these are just examples i'm not i don't like to put good or bad on because i think it's always context dependent um but you know it's the binging on chocolate it's the tub of benadryls it is the alcohol it is the nicotine it is whatever else it gives you that instant pleasure but it just because it comes so cheaply it also goes away so quickly um, and then you're in this sort of dopamine cycle where you can obviously get dopamine from things like exercise, um, being out in nature, walking, talking with friends. You know, there are other activities that aren't necessarily as easy to pursue, but will give you that dopamine effect, but in the, also kind of have a more sustained and rewarding feeling and also tend to be more in line with people's goals. So you don't get that, you don't enter into that kind of mini guilt cycle that you sometimes get afterwards with some of these activities. You know, obviously with yeah. alcohol, it's the typical you know, with alcohol, you get the escapism as well, that you don't you get the escapism, you get the dopamine, you get the night out, and then you get the cost the next day. So you're in this kind of up, down, up, down. Really, I, I like to kind of encourage people to keep an even keel. You know? So you're not having these huge lows followed by these huge um, highs, followed by these huge lows, and you're just constantly being pulled back and forth. Um, yeah, so I think that it, it, it is, um, you know, <sighs> Burnout's a tricky one, isn't it? And 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 everything that comes with it. Um, it's 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 interesting I, though because it, it's it's like I find that I I used to when I was really really tired in my earlier teaching days I used to very much snack and eat chocolate and when I and fall asleep on the sofa and I I just felt horrific. But like once I realised that kind of you can't control the stress. The stress is always going to happen. You can only control how you react to it. So when I have a stressful day, I work out and then I feel fine and I feel a lot happier and then I don't want that. And it's, I guess it's, it's exchanging one for the other and creating a healthier habit of having to deal with the stress in order to like stop the burnout from happening. Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm a big fan of stoic philosophy and what you touched on there is obviously a very stoic thing. It's, you know, essentially their dichotomy of controls, like, basically in life you should only really concern yourself with things that you can control and not things you can't and when it comes to things you can't only you can always choose your response um i think what you described is is that but it is definitely not the easy option um but i think the only way through is like you say once you've experienced it again it is it's having that initial 
moment of discipline at the start until it becomes a habit. And then it, it's like anything, once you've got to, through that initial resistance, and obviously the way through that initial resistance really is to shrink the change, you know, and that's um, James Clear with Atomic Habits and um, BJ Fogg with Tiny Habits. Is shrinking to change is something that's so manageable it seems silly. And you can always build and you can always do more on the day, but it's, it's got to be as frictionless as possible. And then you get the reward, but you again, you're also, it's in, again, this comes back to values, it's in line with your values. Now, if you do want to be healthy, then yes, chocolate will give you the same sort of feeling for a lot less effort than exercise might, but you're going to feel better essentially as a whole by going out and doing the exercise. And exercise obviously is with the endorphins. I mean, you know, in terms of even if you compare it to sort of antidepressants for the treatment of, of low mood and depression, it absolutely wipes the floor um, in terms of effectiveness for dealing with, with low mood. And the bizarre thing as well is it is quite energising, even if you are tired. Um, yeah, that's the thing. It leaves you with more energy afterwards. Because I used to, I got into, so I got into, I used to go to a workout class once a week and then lockdown happened. So I got then the online app and was working out kind of at home and what me and my friends would do we'd all take a picture and post it and we'd be like say what number workout we did and we'd all try and do the same one it was kind of nice having that kind of community feel to kind of create that habit and almost that kind of accountability to keep you going and and but a lot of my friends would work out in the morning and I was an evening person so like I would end up doing the ones that they did and I was like I could never get up at six o'clock in the morning and work out like you guys are absolutely insane that is not me I could never do that and then I started do. I did it for a week and then I was like oh, okay actually that wasn't too bad and now I'm a morning workout like I work out every morning and then I work a, like occasionally work out in the evenings if I want to do my longer weight sessions but like I never if you told me two years ago that I was going to be getting up every morning and working out I'd have said you were absolutely insane but I, I think it's that you have to give it a go and get over the mind the mindset is almost more difficult than the actual kind of habit yeah and i think a lot of that comes down to what you, you touched on there is identity we have this idea of we tell ourselves who we are and then we look for evidence to support that you know so i i think we have this confirmation bias it's just like when people say i i i can never be i will never be it's because we've built up over the years this this picture of who we are and we like to maintain that and that's why you know when people get too attached to a single part of their identity, for example, and, and, and that gets taken away from them, um, you know, a certain lifestyle or profession or something like that. It's a very alienating experience because it's like we build our whole lives around this identity. Um, and of course, the, the, the way that we can change our identity or adopt new identities to be more in line with who we'd like to be rather than who we tell ourselves are, is like to say, is evidence. Um, I remember working with a client and, and they got into the Couch to 5K program and she 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 loved it and she finished it and she, she I still wouldn't call myself a runner then I was like so what does a runner do and she was like well they, they run and I was like what have you been doing for the last month so well I've been running and I was like well what are you then if you've been running are you, are you not a runner and I think what she was saying she's not a good runner but you know we can change our identities by trying on just like we try on new clothes you know we can try on new habits new lifestyles um and like you say just try um I think I, the reason I do these personal 28 day challenges is I think it's long enough for it to get boring because everything's exciting at the start and everything, you know, your motivation, willpower, discipline is all through the roof. And then after a few weeks, maybe even less, it kind of fades. So by 28 days, you've got a really good idea. It doesn't necessarily become a habit then, but you've got a good idea of, is this something I really want to do? Um, but it's also, you know, 
short enough to like it doesn't feel like forever so i just always you know like you like you said yourself with the morning exercise um you know give yourself a time frame try it and then you you can become that person um i i my decision to quit drinking was made the morning after a night out i hadn't even contemplated it before then um i what didn't even cross my mind and it's now been five years it was just like I, my goal again with 28 days and then i just tried on for sizes but i was not someone that was like in fact i was probably one of those people that didn't really understand people that didn't drink you know or didn't enjoy a night out um and i never thought five years down the road i'd be saying that someone that's been alcohol free by so i do encourage like i say my one of my favorite things is experimentation because it takes the pressure off failure then as well um you know you just see it as a let's try this out and if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out you know you, that's the way it goes sometimes uh paul asks what's the smallest 28 day task you've done um i have a feeling i could do it but i need to start small god it's quite I think what it's it's got to be important to you. Um, so, for example, all my challenges, I ha they have to be, they have to feel like there's some upside. Um, and obviously, it depends where you're starting at. So, for example, what did what did I do? So, I don't really do push-ups um, in the gym. I prefer to this way. So, I did six thousand push-ups. So that was two hundred and something a day. Um, but because I exercise a lot. That was enough of a challenge for me. I like to put it as, as like a 50-50% success uh, chance of failure and success. So it's got to feel challenged enough. And the, the analogy I always like to use is like tennis. So we have this Goldilocks zone in terms of um, what appeals to us. So if you play tennis against a three-year-old, you're going to get bored and it wouldn't, you wouldn't want to keep on playing. If you play tennis against Roger Federer, it's going to be far too challenging. You're going to become demotivated and deinterested very quickly. Whereas if you play someone around the same ability that was slightly better than you, it's probably going to be engaging enough, but also make you want to do better. So it's finding that Goldilocks zone. Um, they call it, a lot of people like to say step outside your comfort zone. I prefer to use like to nudge your comfort zone bigger. So I'd find something in in that zone that's without knowing more did you say it was a pool yeah i don't know if it, like i the, so the way i work in my coaching program is i focus on the four found foundations which are sleep mindset nutrition and exercise and basically i would be like there's a really good book called the one thing and so i would sort of ask myself what is the one thing that i could focus on right now that would have the biggest impact on my life and by doing it would make everything else easier so, for example, if, if I look at a client and they're sleeping for five hours a night, I know that by changing that, all those other three boxes are going to become much easier to manage and probably improve by default. So my decision to take a break from alcohol was my one thing, because I knew that if I quit drinking, my sleep would get better. You know, my skin would get better. My energy gets, would get better. My mood would get better. Basically, all the other areas of my, like my finances would get better. Do you see how this trickle down effect from that one down uh, from that one decision essentially permeates into all the areas of my life where I felt I also had to improve. So while I may go on to then focus on those things individually, I knew that by focusing on this one thing at the top of the pyramid, if you like, they would all be boosted up and maybe actually fix themselves without having to focus on them directly. Um, but I think there has to be, this is where most people, so for example, and this is not, I, 
I have nothing against veganism. Um, I just have no desire to be vegan myself. So, for example, doing a 28-day vegan diet, I would not see an upside for myself. So it would just be sort of a pretty pointless challenge to me personally. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, completely. As I, I, I'm not the person you were talking about, but I did my my first challenge was I did, I did the Couch to 5K, and at the end of it, I decided I was going to do a mile a day for August um, for charity, and then I ended up getting twice as much sponsor money. So I was like, right, I will do two miles a day for 31 days and not being a runner and not claiming myself I am not a runner still not a runner even though what a runner looks like um like the and it was quite nice because a lot of people my friends came and joined in and they came on the runs with me and I just had that discipline to do it but it was for me it was it was more the achieving at the end that I made me realize that I'm capable of doing anything like there isn't I can do it I just have to have the right mindset to do it and it's mind over matter and I think it's it's just changing that habit, and actually, once you get in the swing of it, it it's it's all good. Um, but Paul said, Paul said, no, I think Paul Paul is very much every teacher, and I know that I've spoken to this about this because I'm horrific at it. And my sister's here at the moment, and both of us got up this morning, went didn't sleep. I was worrying about this. I was worrying about work. Uh, it's a lack of sleep. Is I'd say the majority of teachers' kind of well being issues is that we very much don't know how to switch off and kind of don't necessarily have the best habits i know i'm personally one of those people that i'm like i rush around get everything done and then i'm like right i'll just have an hour of telly and then i'll go to sleep and then i either fall asleep on the sofa or it's just one more episode and i end up kind of because i feel like i haven't relaxed i'm trying to have that extra relaxing time and therefore cutting out of my sleep but what are the best ways to kind of create good sleep habits so i think there's a couple of things i could suggest in that context which is is um and it all comes down to really routine or you can just call it boundaries if people are adverse to having routines which i know some people are um so the um people are familiar with parkinson's law um but it's basically the statement that work will expand to fill the time that it's given so if you take a 30 minute task and you give yourself an hour and a half to do it it will take an hour and a half. If you take a 30 minute task and you give yourself 30 minutes to do it, it will take 30 minutes. It's just the way it's this weird rule of the world, the way it seems to happen is basically the more time you give yourself to do something, the longer that thing will take, even if it could in theory take less time. So <clears throat> if you're looking at a daily-ish routine, um, I, I think you've got to have a hard boundary of when you're going to stop work sort of whatever that may be. Um, obviously, you have marking and things, I'm assuming, in the holidays and planning for next We never um, stop. <laughs> right. So you've got to have, you, you, and this is where it gets tricky in, in school term because, and this is where, so I'm, I'm self-employed. Um, I think this is where sometimes having a nine to five is hugely more appealing in, you know, where, with the, the, the people that have jobs where they turn up at nine, they log off at five and they go home and work it. That's it. There's these, these hard boundaries set by other people. When, you know, as, as you know, you have to, you are responsible for those boundaries yourself. So I think what you have to have is um, you have to, I would work backwards. The, the best thing that you can do for sleep, and interestingly, um, I actually just shared this with you about the how having a regular sleep and wake cycle affects your gut microbiome, which is a fairly new thing. But the best thing you can do for sleep is have a constant sleep-wake cycle. So going to bed, give or take half an hour at the same time, seven days a week. This is this isn't like 
playing catch up at weekends and stuff and waking up at the same time. And I think if I was, I was thinking about this before we, we jumped on and I was like, I think in the context of everything that I say during this, if I was to approach this as a teacher, I'd be trying to create something now that didn't require too much adaptation going into term time because the temptation can be to get yourself set up with this incredibly new healthy lifestyle yeah. with all these habits only for a few weeks down the line to be like, well, how the hell does that factor into everything else I've now got going on? Do you know what I mean? You know, so exactly. it, it has to be it has to be realistic 52 weeks a year, not just the six weeks of summer, for example. Um, and it, there's give and take in that, but you don't want to be, you know, way off. So what I would do is I would like, what is a realistic bedtime? Um, how much time do I need to wind down? So now you're going backwards, you know, to earlier in the day. Um, okay, if I want to start winding down at 7 p.m., that has to be my hard boundary for work. Because the thing is, as you know, like any to-do list, but especially work, there's always more work to be done. Um, so it's having that, um, I believe it was Hemingway that would always finish his writing halfway through a sentence or a paragraph so that he knew exactly where to pick up the next day. So he wasn't having to spend the first few hours or minutes of his day being like, okay, what I need to think of what to do. He always knew exactly what to do. So you can kind of like nick that sort of theory a little bit and be like, yeah, I could do this now and I could still get it done. But also I know that I'm going to wake up knowing exactly what to do, which kind of closes that loop because when there's always stuff to do, we have open loops in our mind. And then if the loop's not closed, we ruminate on it. And rumination is not good for mental health, but it's also terrible for sleep. So if it was me, I would set a hard bedtime. I then set a boundary of if I need two, two and a half, whatever, how many hours to wind down and accommodate for, like you say, some Netflix or reading a book, or whatever it may be, um, allowing for that and then setting a boundary and then also just having um, a, one productivity tactic that works for some people is time blocks. So, you know, head down, maybe headphones in, in a place where you're not going to get interrupted um, and distracted and just being like, I've got to get as much done work as work as possible as I can. Um, because when we enter this state of hyper-focus, we obviously are more productive. Which I think you're reading, by the way, hyper-focus at the moment or have read. Oh, I'm, I'm it's it. it's on my list to do. I've just I've just started one of the the the, the time one the the five is it five thousand years? Oh, four thousand weeks. Four thousand yeah, weeks. Fantastic one. book. Um, um, so yeah, I've been telling my sister all about the monks. We're <laughs> having a good laugh. <laughs> I just didn't think about like the the fact that before time ex- existed, like how people measured time. That I just hadn't thought about it. And actually, like time is what we make of it. And I think going back to your kind of previous point, it is that idea that like with teachers we can we can there's always more we can do and especially now that all this pressure is going on I I genuinely feel like I probably do the work of two people to get my students but then my students get outstanding grades but I put that pressure on myself that they all get every year no matter what that has to be done um but it's it took me quite a long time to kind of go if I stop and don't do the work like it's not all going to fall apart They'll, the kids will still learn there's kids will still do well they'll still be resilient and I think especially kind of embarrassingly breaking not one but two feet in the last year and then having a DVT and a pommy embolism like I I had to stop I mean granted I still only took kind of a week off at a time and 
and kind of was still going into schools. And actually the kids went, when I went, I'm not going to do the after school because I'm still not quite right and I need to go home. And the kids are like, no, miss, like you need to be healthy. You need to put yourself first. And actually, actually like it took me a bit of them kind of saying it to me to go, actually, like it's not all going to fall apart if I if I do stop. And especially like an early careers teacher that goes in that has the workload is quite a lot. It's not until you kind of get a little bit into teaching and you kind of understand how to manage your workload slightly better. But but like making yourself have the habit of one day a week making sure you leave at three o'clock and you you do stop your work and Paul's commenting in about like quite similar to me like he feels cheated by the amount of work he does so therefore kind of watches telly or does whatever late to try and make up for the fact that you you've not got that kind of work relaxed balance and I think it is that understanding that that kind of everything will be fine if you do stop but there's always that idea that you can continuously fill the time if, if you allow yourself yeah, I, I think you guys are in a tricky position in the sense that I do think <laughs> that you guys have got way too much work. Um, but if we go back to that stoic principle, it's like, is there, is that something that you can control? And then it really comes down to making peace. It comes down to acceptance, which is that you could probably, you guys could probably work 12 hours a day nonstop and still be left with stuff to do. So at what point do you draw the line in the sand and be like, well, it's only, you know, make peace with the fact that there is only so much I can do. Um, and obviously it does still need to get done. But the, 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 other, the other side of looking at it is a quality and quantity um, argument. I mean, you know, the work towards the end of the day is going to be of, of a, you know, it, when you're tired, yeah, everything takes longer, right? So it's like, well, actually, you know, you could argue, and this definitely isn't, you know, it would have to be again one of the experiments that you ran but you know like if you were so let's say you take the last two hours of the day and you called it a day two hours early like you're right you know it doesn't help mentally but the world is not going to end and there will still be tomorrow and there'll be another 24 hours and, and and but you could there would be a case i'd say to argue that actually by being rested by calling it a day earlier and picking things up where you left off the day after, by being more alert, having had better sleep, it may take you an hour to do what it would have taken you two hours at the end of the day. Just because you're going to be firing better, you're going to be, like I say, rested and, and just more with it. It may not be the case, but there is always going to be that work. But the thing is as well, the more run down you are, um, let, let's just, okay, let's accept the fact that there's too much work. <laughs> yeah. And there is nothing that you can do about it. And in order to do it, you need to work all hours of the day. At some point, your mind or body is going to break. Yeah. And then rather than, let's say, cutting things off two hours early at the end of the day, now you're out for a week because you've just run yourself into the ground. And if you're, if you're experiencing truth, burnout, I feel, is overused. But I think there are certain professions, especially where it, it is. I think it, it's colloquially used too often. But because true burnout, you know, you can be wiped for months. And so by doing the what feels like the right thing in the moment and pushing for that extra one or two hours at the end of the day, you know, and this comes down to the what is the tan what is the thing that you're not thinking of further down the line? Okay, so like it's like I say, like you might be taking steps in this direction, but you've got to look at where the path is taking you, not just those steps. And if it's taking you down, you know, so that you're completely out of it for months or firing at 50% and therefore everything takes twice as long to do. Are you not, my, my argument would be, are you not better off making peace and cutting back day to day and just accepting that 
there's always going to be a lot of work to do as things are at the moment than waiting until you get to the point where you simply can't continue as is because something something's always got to give um and that's where you know it takes a lot longer to come back from um no i completely agree yeah I, I think i think that is it and it's the same with kind of like the nhs and the balance there i think they're experiencing quite similar things that there's just this demand and and the the levels have just gone up in terms of what we need to do and and like there's all this pressure in terms of the students mental health and how they've deteriorated since covid but actually the the pressure on the teachers and the scenarios we're having to deal with are, are very much kind of increasing but i think it's it, i think like the healthy habit thing almost like transfers to school quite well because if you if you can get the students in the habit and this t- in terms of like even like behavior like it's having that routine and, and those expectations and even like down to manners like holding doors open and saying hello to guests and and or kind of the <laughs> toilet gate i don't know whether you've heard about it the fact that children kind of want to leave lessons to go to the toilets but they're getting vandalized so a lot of schools have kind of locked toilets and they say they can only go break and lunchtime when they can be supervised uh, oh, and wow. there's been a lot of outroar in terms of that but I think it's it's but it's kind of building that habit that like you go you go in the morning you go at break time you go at lunchtime and like everything would be fine but it's that kind of understanding the boundaries I guess in terms of kind of thinking about what the consequences are in terms of especially like from the student going back to kind of like the student point of view of it in terms of how they understand it and I think I like the interesting idea about the autonomy. So I'm currently in the process of kind of writing a series of kind of assemblies based on kind of habits that I kind of want the students to be able to understand because I'm I'm a year nine tutor and they're going into year 10. So they're about to start their GCSEs. They've had this massive like hormone kind of shift where end of year nine, they're giving up lots of subjects. They don't really care about those and they're end of year nine for any teachers who teach them. No, they can be like miscreants at that point. So it's kind of that reset of start of year 10 and rebuilding kind of like right this is the start of the GCSEs this is the point where like things actually start counting and now I need to think about kind of different things and I think because obviously like little things like making I think was it Atomic Habits that talks about the kind of the British cycling team and the fact that they just looked at little things like changing the fabric of the kit to changing certain parts and and it's all about changing the one percent and I think with students it needs to be it's like you said it needs to be easy it needs to be achievable so they can feel like they're actually getting something out of it but it's kind of building it but I guess it needs to be kind of have that autonomy with it but I think the thing with students in terms of kind of keeping them going through it is perhaps like maybe I don't logging it like I, I feel personally when I log things I'm more likely to achieve them I don't know whether there's any research in that like I know that from doing the workouts and me and my friends are taking photos and sending accountability pictures like that progressed that like I take a picture every single time I work out and I log the number on the workout because I try and aim for 260 a year but then I break things and uh, <laughs> I'm slightly behind but the fact that I can get close to that I find kind of keeps me on track and I can see how close I'm getting to it but I guess d- does logging things help in terms of keeping you on track? Yeah so I mean for you that's your reward um i'm i'm very similar so like i like it i the reason i keep it to do this is the satisfaction i get from marking off tasks as they're done that's my little that closes my little habit feedback loop and i'm like oh look at everything i've done today um yeah but then there is there is um 
a really big thing now within behavior changes gamification, which is, um, so I don't know if anyone, um, I don't know if there's any language teachers listening, but um, I use Duolingo, um, which is a really good example of gamification. You know, noises, whistles, points, level ups, rewards, all these different things. And even though we know how they work, and this is the beautiful thing about behavior, like we, we can really think, but we know how things work and we're still lured in by them. Social media is a perfect example of that. But yeah, it's it's sort of gamification. So for example, um, Jerry Seinfeld used to say that he used to write the, uh, the reason he got so good at comedy was he used to, no matter what, he'd write a joke a day. And when he wrote a joke, he'd obviously try and write more, but the, the goal was a joke a day. He'd mark an X on his calendar. And then obviously he'd mark an X the next day, the next day. And his only rule was don't break the chain. And obviously the longer that the X's get and the longer that the chain gets, the more compelled you are to not let it break. And it's a very simple game. You know that really no one else in the world cares, but you care. You found out that thing and you don't want to break the chain because it just feels bad. And so we now see it with streaks and a lot of apps. I think, you know, it can be used positively or negatively. I think like Snapchat maybe had streaks and that's why you always, you know, and I think Be Real does these things. But this sort of gamification um, is a really good way to do that. But it, it's just finding that reward. But something that's just struck me actually about what obviously your interest in these things is I think that um, influence is a hugely powerful thing. And I think one way that I've noticed that I would think of to speak to children is to essentially um, be an example of what you yeah. think is healthy so you know if you come in in the morning if you walk in in the morning and and you know you look like you've had a really good night's sleep you know someone will be like, oh you you know you look really well today what have you been doing oh i've just been really working on my sleep because i've realized how important it is you're not telling them that they need to go and work on their sleep but you're going to chip away at them they're going to start asking questions so if you come in you know and you look a little bit hot you're just like oh i've just you know i got up early today to go and run 5k because i'm not going to have time later and i know how important exercise is or you know you're bringing in healthy snacks or whatever it is you know if you start doing one thing that i i don't really promote the fact that um i decided to go alcohol free but what people do they started to notice changes within myself and then they ask questions and i never tell them i'm like oh it's because i i just decided to take a break from alcohol but what they see is they see it in me and then they ask me questions about it and i don't tell them that, oh yeah you should try it they're just oh this is just why i did it this is what i decided to do this is how i did it and i don't ever say you should go and try it and then, I, and then, and then, what you're doing is you're, you're 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 showing what's possible. You know, if you do X, then this is you know you can be like me if you do this, or you can be a version something similar, or you can improve and you can feel the way I feel. But by not telling them, they're going to go away. You've essentially given them the evidence, so they've seen into the future, if you like, because you know you're further down the line than they are. And then they're going away, and they're going, they're going to go away and make that, or what they feel like is that decision themselves. They're like, oh, I I want a bit of that. And this is obviously the, the positive side of influence and social comparison that people don't tend to acknowledge as much. You know, social comparison gets a lot of negativity, but, you know, sports people, um, you know, all these people, they look at that and say, okay, and I think now with YouTube and all of these social media apps, you know, people are getting a look into the lifestyles of these successful people. Um, and they're wanting to mimic them. You know, I, I've never, you know, there's fewer and fewer teenagers and 20-somethings drinking now. I think they might be doing other more different drugs but they're not drinking and <laughs> there's more people getting into fitness because they're seeing these yeah you know i think because a lot of careers have become more viable as well now because of the internet but, you know they're seeing these 
you know, that you're getting these 20 year olds who are becoming millionaires through YouTube and they're not all positive influences, but they are having a positive influence on the decision that some people make. You know, it's kind of cool now to go to the gym. And so I think as a teacher, you know, when you stand in front of the class, it's like, okay, well, am I, am I embodying what I'm telling these kids to do? Like, am I, am I doing what I'm asking other people to do? Um, because if not, then there's not, they're going to struggle to see the connect. Well, why should I do it if you don't? Whereas if you come in and you look like you're looking after yourself, you're healthy, you've got energy, you, you know, you're not there with a monster or your fifth cup of coffee or whatever. Um, it doesn't go unnoticed. And that's was the it, thing. Was it John I think, Lennon, yeah. the change you want to see in the world? Or, no, <laughs> Mahatma Gandhi, I think. Um, no, I completely agree. I, I'm I'm quite open with my class. I think I read a book. I, was, I, I always tried to suss out behaviour when I was uh, early in teaching and like, right, how how do you be behaviour? It's all about being stern and and cross and shouty and and being then being scared of you and then they'll behave well. And it, but actually, if you read into it a lot more, a lot of it is that students behave better when they feel like you treat them like a like a person as opposed to a student and I'm quite open with mine and very much will have chats and especially in after schools the conversation flows and like my students are are very much like they will I don't think they're just a little bit polite they're quite often like what are you up to this weekend miss what are you doing and and um I'll quite openly be like oh or what are you doing after school I'm like oh I'll go home I've got a workout and then I'm going to do this and it's like and and then the conversation flows. Oh, what kind of workout are you going to do? We're going to go to the gym and we're going to do this. And it's it's kind of it's quite nice. And I've even had a student when I was like offer me chocolate. I was like, oh no, I'm being good today. I'm not having that. I'm just I'm kind of focusing on these things. And then her, she was like, oh, my mum has these bars. They're like really low in fat and they're but they're really really yummy. And the next week, and this child is it was one of the naughtiest children in the school and was constantly kind of in detention and couldn't sit through a lesson and she bought me in a pack of the the chocolate the low-fat chocolate bars and left them on my desk and was like my mum bought these for you and I was like the fact that that child kind of wouldn't behave for any other teacher could barely last a lesson and yet that conversation like changed things between us and then she was good as gold which is always never as bad as other people said in my lessons but that kind of connected us and she's like I want to lose some weight for holiday and it's 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 giving them a safe place to open up about it um as well but on the flip side I did get caught um doing the conga <laughs> at North Sea Nights <laughs> by a parent who approached me and we're like we've just seen you go past doing the conga can we ask for some career advice so there's I'm like mm, not now um so there's a balance <laughs> to it but um but definitely for them to see you as human and see the habits that you're building like when it is that thing that conversation with the kids that like they're like they will quite often talk to me about what they're doing because I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this. Or even if I'm like, my, oh, I'm going to go. Uh, I take the kids surfing from my school a couple of times, um, kind of three, four times in September and then three, four times in kind of June, July. Um, and and having that chat about it and, and kind of the fact that me and the other teacher will get in and go surfing with them when I'm not breaking bones. Um, and like, they can see us doing it and enjoying it as well. And, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is actually fun. And we're surfing with our teachers and kind of having that fun experience. I think it is, it is breaking down those barriers. But I do think, I think school is the place to kind of build these habits. And I think that's kind of been lost um, with the changes of kind of education. And I think a lot of people kind of think of kind of old school PE and kind of what peers. And I don't think that's what fitness is anymore and I think it is those social influencers are perhaps making people more inquisitive about um kind of the gym if anybody hasn't gone back do go back and listen to my uh 
show with Josh Marler, who's a um, strength and conditioning coach, we talked about kind of the way PE perhaps needs to change and how we change kids' mindsets. Because a lot of people will go, their idea of sport is kind of um, horrible school rounders or netball or uh, kind of basketball or something that they just, just didn't connect with. But actually even just having that healthy connection with going for a walk is, is a healthy habit. And and I think they go from almost one extreme to the other because they have such a negative kind of connotation with PE that they kind of lose all interest in kind of physical activity. Yeah, I, I think we're just as guilty of that as, as adults. I think we've got too narrow a definition of what counts as fitness. Um, you know, I think there's, there's so much more, you know, even we can even fall into the trap of... Um, Sorry, something's just started to mow that lawn outside my window. Um, we could even fall into the trap of thinking, you know, it's gym, running. It's obviously, that, I, I call the foundation movement in, in, in my coaching because I think that it just makes it that broader. Um, but yeah, you, I guess the thing is when you are in school, it's you, they're such influential years, right? And you're, you're starting to form an idea of what the world is like and where you fit into it and all of these things and so yeah I mean it's been a long time since I did PE and I was very fortunate at my school where we got a lot of different sport options um you know so I I I found my feet in rugby and and I think team sports are also particularly great but I think it is having that ability to find what you enjoy um and I guess at school level the team element for the social element would probably come into play more so as adults but i also think as adults we need to do that more like you kind of created your own thing with the workouts in the morning right and that accountability and and everything like that um but we, we have um kind of made it this more isolated activity or just specific to the gym or there has to be a, well you know rock climbing paddle boarding um there's so many boxes that you can tick and it's just encouraging people to move especially with the temptations, like you were saying earlier, that, that kids have these days. I mean, I watched my nephew the other day watching a video of someone playing a video game. So he wasn't even playing a video game. Um, yeah. And he would watch hours of these. And I was just like, I don't, I didn't try and understand because, I, you know, but, um, you know, that, but fortunately he, he, he does play a lot of sport, but it is encouraging just diversify what you, what you classify as sport. And if it's still, if PE is still, super structured like it was um i think it probably yeah i can imagine it would put off a lot of people um and the other thing is we hate being bad at things but obviously everyone's bad when they first start <laughs> so you know if there isn't if it's not let's say all that accommodating i think a lot of people probably the people you know who either have maybe some form of sort of anxiety or are less fit than other people may who are going to struggle the most and therefore need it to be scaled back in order to encourage to keep going are probably actually going to be the ones that are isolated the most um uh I think anxiety is quite an interesting thing because we've seen it massively rise in terms of student. There seems to be a lot of students not coming to school because of anxiety. But I think that the Sunday night anxiety of work on the Monday is also massively on on the rise. Like, are, are there anything that people can do to kind of counteract those or, or ways to kind of get your mindset out of that anxiety? So two things that I really like that, that often get, I get a lot of pushback on because they're kind of a bit out there, but journaling is one. Um, I'll go into these a little bit more depth and um, meditation is another. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to beat the same drum, but obviously a healthy sleep routine is going to reduce all mental health things. Like, like 
getting enough sleep and not being jacked up on caffeine is going to be the foundation all of this comes from. But let's say that you're in half decent shape there. One thing that I find really beneficial is um, it's called stream of consciousness writing. So I think a lot of people, same with meditation, people have these preconceived ideas of what exactly it is. I find both really beneficial. I don't necessarily do them all the time, but particularly I think I have done them for prolonged periods of time. And then now I use them as tools if, if when I need them. But um, if we start with meditation, it's a sense, essentially it's just the practicing the art of non-attachment. Um, you know, so when thoughts come into your head, you don't have to act on them. Um, a lot of people think it's like sitting in a lotus position and chanting. And it can be that if you want it to be that, of course. But really, if you've got a very busy mind, it's just, let's say, sitting down for, you might start with two minutes. In fact, go, going back to something like, um, like Paul was asking about a 28-day challenge, like, for example, if you like, if the idea of meditation appeals to you and, and, or you've read about it and you never actually got started, you know, five minutes a day for 28 days would be like an example of a really good 28-day challenge. And that would be the minimum. You might go higher towards the end, but like that could be like, by the end of it, you're going to know if it works or if it doesn't, if you enjoy it, if you don't. But just sitting there and when a thought or a feeling comes into your mind, just letting it go and it, that sounds so simple and it's definitely not that simple but the more you do it the easier it gets and you can just but you can it, for me personally it reduces the feeling of overwhelm and like i've got to operate 100 miles an hour and you know everything needs to be get done and, and it needs to get done now um i can you know so if i'm doing a task well this is why i find it most beneficial is emotional regulation so i you become less reactive um obviously when when something happens to us we have uh, Victor Frankl said between action between action and response there's a break and it's giving you that break but okay this just happened but rather than reacting like getting angry or upset or whatever it is just giving yourself enough of a pause to choose how you're going to respond that's one thing I find meditation really helps with is being less sort of more I guess less emotionally reactive but the other one is I have um a lot of thoughts <laughs> a lot of the time so i can be doing something and then i'll think like oh yeah that, I, that that's interesting and then i'll start googling that and then i'm 40 pages and before i know it something that looked at you know i was maybe googling how a certain muscle works in a certain movement and now all of a sudden i'm finding out some probe that they sent off to go and investigate jupiter and take pictures or something like completely unrelated to the original. there's probably a tangible line there often is through it but it makes absolutely no sense and with meditation i find that rather than having the thought and being like i need to act on that now um it just pause i can pause and be like okay and i can write it down and i can move on and almost just not get attached to that thought or feeling the stream of consciousness writing i i feel personally is more powerful because it's slightly more active but it's essentially just sit down Set a timer. You can do it. You can do a word count, or you can do a timer, whichever works for you. The the, the uh, Julia Ta Julie Cameron, I believe her name is, did a book on the artist way, which is actually for writers, but it's kind of stream. It is a form of stream conscious writing. So she suggested seven hundred and fifty words. I believe it's an arbitrary number. Um, there's a guy called Penny Baker that um, wrote a book on. I think it was called feel better by writing it down something which actually studied journaling and so they looked at these people that lost their jobs and they were asked for just three days to write about how they felt for 10 to 15 minutes and not only did they get re-employment as in they viewed their situation more positively and took back control of the situation um, but they suffered less um, symptoms of ill health and bad mood as a result of their losing their jobs 
So basically, so let's say let's just use those numbers, ten to fifteen minutes. Write. There are no rules. No one else is ever going to read it. You don't even have to reread it back. Just write. Just literally have a brain dump on the page. And I, if you've never done this, it's fascinating because as you're reading it, and it becomes almost an objective thing, like you're reading back what someone else has written, even though it's you that's written it. The amount of times that I've just, as I'm writing it, I'm just like, oh my God, Carl, you are being an absolute moron. Because when I'm seeing it back at me, it becomes real. So there's two ways it works. First of all, again, like I said before, it's closing those loops in the head. So you're not holding on to all these thoughts and feelings and problems and situations. You're getting it out onto paper, which almost gives the brain permission to be like, okay, well, that's captured somewhere now. Like, if needs be, I can come back to that at another point, even though you don't have to. But what you actually do is you kind of react to it as if it's someone else telling it to you. And, and, and you're almost requiring evidence because a lot of the stories that we tell ourselves actually have no evidence. And when you look for the evidence to support the beliefs that you hold about yourself, um, nine times out of ten, they're not there. Um, and so I think journaling... I can't remember what, what, what we were talking about now. <laughs> um, anxiety, to reduce anxiety. Yes. So <laughs> one of the big symptoms of depression and, and um, anxiety is rumination. And I found the stream of consciousness writing, getting all the thoughts out, the amount of problems I solved and the things that I was anxious about, when I looked at it in this almost objective sense, just either the answer became clearer, I realized it was something that I could do nothing about and therefore I could choose how I was going to respond, whether I let it go or dealt with it in a different way. But also nine times out of 10, it was just a, almost like a pressure valve had been released on my head. And once I'd written down, you know, in, I often found that, you know, I'd say do 750 words and just keep on writing, especially if you've never done it before. You, you know, Grammar doesn't matter, punctuation, all of it goes out the window. It's just whatever's going through your head, get it out onto paper. And and this is just anecdotal, even though, like I say, this book does, there's a lot of supporting evidence for it if you do want to go the more scientific route. But anecdotally, I just found it just was, it was just great. And I think um, one thing that I recommend with sleep, what a fantastic time to do this, is just before bed. And it is to stop that overthinking at night is even if it's just the form of a to-do list, capturing it externally to the mind, whether it's on a paper, in the notes app, on your phone, although I don't encourage phones in the bedroom. But, you know, before you go to bed, um, I, leave my, I leave all my tech downstairs. But, you know, I might just capture everything that's on my mind because, like I say, I know that when I wake up in the morning, I've not forgotten anything. I'm not like my brain isn't working overtime being like, must not forget that, must not forget that, must not forget that. I know it's down there and it's safe and it's, a really simple way to just help that brain disengage at the end of the day. Because my worst um, bit for it is um, exam season. And, and this is where I have to be careful with how I wear it. So I used to keep a, a book by my bed and all the kids are doing different things for their exams because they all have picked different topics. And I would have dreams about where their project should go. So I'd wake up and write them down. And then I'd come to school and I was like, I dreamt about you last night. And they're like, what, miss? What are you doing? <laughs> um, but, but like, but for me, it was, but then I, was, I would never remember it kind of in the morning, but it, they were always so vital and so key. But like, obviously that's where we do a lot of thinking in, in that kind of that time before bed and that, or maybe even like if we don't write it down, it's like going to come into our dreams, I guess. Yeah. And, and there is a lot to be said for mind wandering a lot of people. And I think going back to what you were saying about burnout and stuff, it is, 
um, people see rest as like, they see rest and productivity as this dichotomy with each one being at the end of the spectrum. It's actually, they're both very complementary to each other because when you rest and you truly disengage from whatever it is you're trying to do, it's kind of like when the brain starts to associate what it is that you've been doing and connecting all the dots, you know, the, all the neurons are firing together and you're consolidating all the information, all the stimulus that you've been taking in. As long as you keep taking in and keep trying to produce, 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 as long as you keep doing that, the brain can't connect all of this. And that's why we become forgetful and doing things. It's actually during rest that we consolidate the ideas, but we also enter, you know, we can, when we let our mind wander, is when the brain starts connecting all these different ideas, which is why we have these ideas in our dreams. And obviously you can get into lucid dreaming, which is a whole nother story, but, you know, because that's when we, when we stop thinking, the brain almost starts putting things together. So, you know, when do people have ideas? Steve Jobs famously would ever only ever hold meetings on a walk. And, and you know, I don't know. For me personally, I have my best ideas either A, in the shower or B, on a walk when I'm not otherwise thinking about other things intentionally. So if ever I have a problem, I actually step back, go for a walk, and people can be like, oh, well, that must be nice. It's like, actually, it's not anti-productive. It's actually, I know that I'm going to go back and yeah. probably have solved this solution and be more productive in the time after the walk than I would have been had I tried to sit there and slog it out and try and, you know, I think there was a, a, a computer screen. I think there was actually a study on it that... Um, there was a school that made their GCSE students go for a walk before they did their exam and they made them have a snack as well. So they went, had a walk, had a snack, and then they would go into their exams and rather than doing a study session. So I think one year they did a study session where they studied and then went straight into the exam having studied. But actually the kids that just went for a walk and had a snack and went into that kind of with a clear mind did much better on their exams. So there's, there's kind of that aspect of it as well. Yes, yeah, so there's a fascinating book, and you can probably just get the study, but it's called Spark, and it's about this guy that introduced morning miles into schools in America. Yeah. And um, because he, he, he was um, essentially studying how exercise affects our brain, and he sort of found out about uh, the neural pathway, how exercise helps with that, and, and mood and learning and memory, and um, something called BDNF, and so he, he tried it on, on, and it sounds very similar, it might be the same study that you mentioned, where, yeah, he made basically these um, students had to do um, physical activity before they went into a class, and, like, their grades, their attention, everything went through the roof. Um, you know, they were, in, they were in this sort of heightened state. So, it, it, yeah, it was hugely beneficial to do. Um, you know, we all have, we have energy flows throughout the day, so everyone knows the circadian rhythm, and I've completely forgotten it. Um, what the name of it is now but there's uh sort of like a biorhythm throughout the day with peaks and troughs in productivity um and naturally dipping energy levels so you know a lot of people think that the afternoon slump is like maybe something that's wrong with them it's actually always been kind of a thing um so one thing i always think for productivity is rather than you know i work nine to five is trying to naturally find your cycles throughout the day of when you are most productive and when you are least productive and tailoring your day around that to match your mood and energy and matching the task whatever it is you're trying to do so obviously not 100 percent sure of all the tasks that you have to do but let's say that you find marking um let's say high focus and there's something else that's low focus you don't want to be trying to mark at the end of the day when you're knackered let's say you want to be doing that maybe first thing when you're most productive but then what you can do is you can use those lulls to either recharge and rest so that you can come back more productive or do low activity levels and that way you might end up getting Sort of more done in the same amount of time rather than trying to we just have this 
And I think part of it is to do with the sort of hustle culture of more is more is more, but it's not always the case. And I think rest, and particularly one thing I always like to do is, is zoom out, you know? So we look at things day to day and sometimes week to week, but you've got to look out yearly as well. And mm. obviously now we're in the summer holidays. So it's like looking at it in the scope of, if you were to take a week's break completely, like, and when I say rest, you don't have to do rest of things. So rest to you might be hiking through Wales. You know, it, it doesn't, a lot of people yeah. think rest is sitting, sitting there doing nothing. It, it's, it's something that recharges you and you can be fully engrossed in activity, but it's, it's recharging, it's revitalizing, whatever that may be. It could be a spa, but it could be skydiving. It doesn't, it, you know, it's just got <laughs> to be restful, but you know, you've got to start thinking like, okay, well, we're taking a week to truly rest. You know, even though then you're kind of technically a week behind in work, let's say, but would those five weeks be far more productive? As a, would you be better? Would you be more productive? Yeah. Would you be in a better mood as a result of forcing yourself to take that break rather than just never having that break and getting to the end and feeling no better? Um, it's definitely it's, that people need to have the break in the holidays. It, 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 you have guilt over not doing it, but it, it's one of those teachers either kind of do it all at the beginning so that they can enjoy the end, or you do it at the end, ready for for going back. But it's it's definitely it's definitely not six weeks of chilling out. That's for sure. <laughs> no, and I, and and I you know I think six weeks is obviously yeah. But I think do you know what would be a really good idea? I think a little experiment would be worth trying is because the thing is you've got as well is is when I used to live in London, so yeah, you know, people say they had a nine to five. It really meant eight thirty to six thirty. I often used to say to people, it's like, well, you're doing all this extra work a week and you're not being compensated for it. So why do, why do people do it? So, like, well, because everyone else does. It's a cultural thing, right? So, you know, you could be the person that stands up and it's like, well, actually, this is my contract and this is what I'm, you know, this is what I'm here to do. And obviously that you've got morals and people want to do more and be helpful, especially, you know, teachers are going to be, have sort of more those characteristics about them more so than other professions. But what I, what I mean is, is, if you're the person that stood up, you'd just be got rid of because someone else will come in that's willing to play by the rules set by other people so unless there's a huge revolution within the teaching landscape and everybody just decides that you you're doing way too much which is obviously i think maybe starting to bubble from what i can yeah tell, it's you know, wales has started wales has started uh, now they've got their pay rise they've started striking on working conditions so um right so <laughs> we'll they're, see. They're, look, they're, they're looking for the cultural shift but yeah you know, one person standing up is, is is not enough noise but what you could so you could be like okay well that's i can't control that i can work towards that as a long-term aspiration but what can i do right here right now and maybe having like you did with workouts is having an accountability club of teachers that are like do you know what we're going to create our own work-life balance here and we might yeah. get it wrong we're going to experiment but what we're going to do is we're going to make sure that we're going to set work hours or we're going to set like we're only going to work Monday to Friday and at the weekend we cannot check our phones. We cannot do whatever, you know, whatever devices or whatever, you know, and we're going to check in with each other and make sure that we, when we say we're going to rest, we're going to rest. And when we say we're going to work, we're going to work. And when we say we're going to finish work on, on a day, we're going to finish work. And having that, a culture of people that, uh, you know, like a micro culture of people that are sharing the same values and ideas and habits and keeping each other accountable. Um, you know, because it's not going to happen on a larger scale. So you're going to, have to kind of have to downsize it to, to support other people who are feeling the same way that you're feeling and be like, look, this isn't going to change. So we need to change ourselves. And how can we make sure that we do this? And I, like I say, I think a lot of people will be surprised, like when you do slow down, that A, the world doesn't end, but B, actually when you have intense periods of focus, you might be able to get maybe not the same amount done, but a lot more than you think you will get done in less time. Um, and also, you know, like I say, it's, 
it's just it does feel like a roll of the dice but the only way that you're gonna um i think it's like the four-day work week with other jobs is you either experiment with it or you do what we do we look to other countries and get them to try it first and we're like oh yeah we can do that <laughs> like we basically wait for other people to make the mistakes or succeed and then we piggyback off them and i think you can either do it that way or you you're always going to have you know the early adopters who are like no we're gonna we're gonna try a different way and then finding people that share that belief and value system and want to you know and i think you've got to look at people that aren't trying something different you know they're getting to the point like you say where they're walking away from the professional they feel let down or there is no choice so i think before you get to that it's like well can i change i can't change the culture but can i change myself and can i find people that support me and it might just be enough you know to to dial it back a little bit where you're not constantly stressed overwhelmed and everything and i think it's going to take a, a lot to get maybe to where it needs to be but if you can progress within like you said when you do that 28 day challenge sometimes the reward is doing something that you said you were going to do in the first place even if nothing else fundamentally changes like making a commitment and sticking to it the satisfaction that you get from being like, i said i was going to do this and i did it even if nothing really has tangibly changed although that's very rarely the case that is huge the, the self-esteem boost the self-confidence and the self-belief that you get from doing that and trying something new even if you ultimately fail but sticking to what you said you're going to do is huge i i completely and, agree i think it's it is it is that but it's i, I like the idea is is it's having something proving to yourself that you're capable of doing more but also kind of that balance of you can do less and achieve more <laughs> and that's 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 makes so little sense on paper but is actually so true and it's one of those things that you have to experience i think um and it is there is that initial leap of faith where i think where most people struggle because it, it's not logical um until you realize that there are people out there doing it um but you know like you say is is i think you know you just have to be that early adopter and be like no something's got to give and we're going to try something different and finding a few people who support you in that endeavor and and um you know the one thing that i really like to do <laughs> i'm gonna say really like i i guess i do enjoy it but um it, it does sound a bit negative but it when it comes to decision making for myself and i always think like what's the very worst case scenario like like the very worst case and I always tell myself, if I can handle the very, I, I don't want to be in the worst case scenario. I don't just, you know, it's not a hope, but I accept that A, it's a reality, but B, I always say like, well, if I can handle that, if I end up in the worst case scenario and I know that I can handle being there, then what reason have I got to not try? And I often think when people think about what the worst case scenario is, if they truly think about it, and I mean, you know, it does take a little bit of thinking about what, what you might not necessarily want to think about. Well, when you accept the reality of what the worst case scenario truly is, with most things, it's really not that bad. And that's quite empowering because you're like, well, I've got a lot to gain. And actually, yeah, I don't want to end up in a worst case scenario. But you know what? If I do end up there, I know I'm going to be all right. Or at least I know how I'm going to get out of it. And that removes the fear element of... And what you can also do is like, you can take it a step further and you can say, okay, well, if I do end up in the worst case scenario, I'm going to put myself there now. And this is almost like I said earlier about bringing the future into the present. Okay, so let's say I've ended up in the worst case scenario. What would I have to do to get myself back to where I am now? So now when you enter into this new scary decision, you've almost removed the fear, not the desire to, to fail, but you've removed the fear because you not only do you know what the worst case scenario is and be that you've accepted it and can potentially deal with it, 
but now you also have a plan to get back to where you want. So while you don't want to go there, you know that if you go there, it's not the end of the world. Unless, of course, it is, and I wouldn't encourage you to, to do it in the first place. <laughs> but, but it's never as bad as you think it's going to be, basically. No, but, but people don't want to, you know, people with this, especially with this sort of uh, the toxic positivity side of things, you know, they're always optimistic side of things. It's actually the little dose of reality um, thrown in can actually be really beneficial. And it's, I don't think it is negative thinking. You're just thinking of the negative in a positive way. Because if that, if thinking about the negative gets you to make a positive change in your life, then I don't see how that's negative. No, it's not. See, I knew you were the man that would fill an hour and a half of chatting. Um, oh, have I thank already? Thank you so oh. much. Yeah, and I realised I haven't played the news. So the news is coming. The news is coming. So hold on to anybody who's listening because um, our summer holiday news is on uh, next. But thank you so much for joining me. There's loads of food me. for thought there. Oh, it's been it's been great fun. That, that time flew past. I'm good to go for another two hours if you want. <laughs> we'll have to have you back on. Uh, Perfect, um, so we just need that. to have demand. <laughs> <laughs> or um, or once I've sorted out my student habits, I'll um, have to get you to uh, talk through them and see whether they sound any good. <laughs> well, you can use them as accountability check-in further down the line to see if you stay yes, on track. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you very much. And thank you to all the teachers listening. I hope you're enjoying your break and are going to have a break and create some habits for yourselves ready to get going in September. So thank you very much for listening. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. With exam results looming for students from all four home nations and around the world, Schools Week features an article concentrating on the ongoing impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. The article, written by a head teacher, says we need to continue to consider the additional burden of the pandemic. It reminds us that this year's Year 13s were part of a cohort who didn't sit GCSE exams, and that this year's Year 11s were in Year 8 when lockdowns began, although the start of GCSE was supposed to be a return to normal for these students. Teachers too faced the challenge of a return to normal content, having had it reduced over the last two years. ECTs also needed some increased support in delivering the broader content for a number of GCSEs. Workload for pupils and teachers shifted and perhaps increased as schools tried to find the right balance of support, revision and basic content coverage by often offering after school and holiday intervention sessions. Whatever happens for individuals on results days this year, the ghost of the pandemic, he says, has not disappeared just yet. The Guardian reports on new local government association research 
which suggests council-maintained schools in England outperform academies in Ofsted ratings. The research found 93% of council-maintained schools were ranked good or outstanding by Ofsted as of the 31st of January 2023. This compared with 87% of academies that have been graded since they converted. The study also found only 57% of academies that were already an academy in August 2018 managed to improve standards from inadequate or requires improvement to good or outstanding, compared with 73% of council-maintained schools. The research has prompted many to question the evidence for a move away from council-maintained schools. Currently, 80% of secondary schools and 40% of primaries are academies. Councils were last able to open maintained schools in 2012. A Department for Education spokesperson said academy reforms have played a major role in increasing the proportion of good or outstanding schools. Mary Bowstead of the National Education Union said allowing local authorities to open new maintained schools would boost the ability to respond to demographic changes by opening quality provision. Whilst the research has been seen by many as a warning about the risks of government policy on academisation, some have pointed out that because schools who are failing are required to convert to academies, the numbers are always going to be skewed. A report by the Children's Commissioner shows that eating disorders such as bulimia, anorexia and binge eating are on the rise in England. Figures suggest that in the UK an estimated 1.25 million have an eating disorder but that young people under the age of 25 are disproportionately affected. The report points to NHS figures which it says show a large and recent increase in the numbers of hospital admissions for young people due to eating disorders, with almost half being for those under 25. Whilst the large majority of those affected are female, admissions of young men have more than doubled in the period from 2015-16 to 2020-21. However, according to the report, whilst the number of children and young people starting treatment has more than doubled, so have waiting times for the beginning of treatment. Urgent cases now take more than 12 weeks to begin. The report suggests that government need to tackle some of the drivers of disordered eating, including online content and forms of social media. In the USA, the Education Secretary, Miguel Cardona, says the Supreme Court decision to eliminate affirmative action may help to axe legacy and donor-based college admissions. The Guardian covers the story which focuses on the college admissions process across America. The wealthiest Americans, who are overwhelmingly white, benefit disproportionately from college admissions based on familial relations with alumni and school donors. Cardona praised colleges who have already stopped legacy admissions, including Wesleyan University, Johns Hopkins and Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He said these and other schools were making sure they're doing more for diversity than they were doing before the end of affirmative action. He did, however, make his criticism of the decision by the Supreme Court clear when he said that there are brown and black kids who are going to feel like they're not wanted. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.